Amazing. We have Richard Reed here, co-founder of Innocent Biggest Smoothie Juice Brand in Europe and co-founder of Jam Jar Investments. When I look at the consumer tech brands that I love, I generally look at the Jam Jar website and they've all been backed uh, by Jam Jar. You know, from starting Innocent in 1999 to selling to Coca-Cola in 2013 and then founding Jam Jar Investments alongside lots of sort of philanthropic endeavors, published uh, works as well. The story really is an amazing one. <laughs> so I'm going to shut up now and turn it over to Richard to tell it from his perspective. I'm going to take you to all my meetings. You mean the, star, the story of Innocent? Yeah. yeah. I don't want to turn this into sort of this one time on Bandcamp kind of scenario, but the whole thing, the whole, it's a story of friendship, first and foremost. I set up Innocent with my two closest friends. They remain my two closest friends. And for me personally, that's the, the very best bit of what has been just the most life enhancing, mind-expanding, brilliant experience. Uh, we met at university. We bonded over a shared love of house music, of which there was none in Cambridge at the time. This is back in sort of 91. And we thought, well, this is really depressing. It's just sort of like rugby boys drinking beer and getting their willies out. And that's just not our scene. No judgment. And um, so we started organizing club nights. And we used to DJ and... John was the only guy in the in the college that had a computer in his room, so we designed flyers with him, and we just got a, a sense of a couple of things. One is we worked really well together as a team. We sort of thought to, we got, we cared about and thought about different things. Secondly, we realised we're having more fun organising the disco than the people at the disco, and the people at the disco were really enjoying themselves. It's just like we were enjoying ourselves even more, and so we we made a connection then, and we said, look. Uh, and we really did use this language at the time. We just figured our life would be better if we sort of built a little bus to drive through life on, and we would be on that bus together. So we had no concept of what the business would be. But there was a commitment that one day we would set up a business. We didn't do anything about it for years. You know, we graduated, went into regular jobs, but just kept having the same conversation again and again about wouldn't it be great to one day to set up a business. And the actual tipping point was... I think seven years after the original commitment to do it, we were on a snowboarding holiday and we're having the same conversation again about well, let's set up a business. And we just, we said to ourselves that we've either got to get on with it or stop talking about it. Otherwise, we'll drive ourselves completely nuts. So we gave ourselves to the end of the weekend to come up with a business idea and we'd either do it or we would then, you know, put the conversation down. And so there was that pressure that weekend to come up with an idea. We were hung over for the whole of that weekend, which actually perversely led to the idea because we were sort of hung over in a bar one morning trying to think of something that people needed and wanted and we needed and wanted something healthy. And that's where the idea for smoothies came from. So it was born out of friendship, but boy, it was inspired by a hangover. And so we, 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 we came back with the idea that we we're going to set up a smoothie business. And having never set up a business before, there was something very simple about it because it was essentially, can you buy fruit and crush it and put it into bottles? And we felt, well, we could at least handle that. So that, that's what we did. And we started doing it while we were still in full-time employment. And we set up a, a stall at a local music festival and we'd made a thousand bottles of smoothies from 500 pounds worth of fruit and took these bottles along, set up a market stall. The market stall was nothing other than some bales of hay, some planks of wood and loads and loads of buckets full of ice to keep the drinks cold. And we just sold the smoothies. And the, the only distinctive feature, there was a big sign above the stall that said, should we give up our jobs to make these smoothies? And I had a bin that said yes on the front. 
and a bin that said no in the front. And we asked everyone to buy them, drink them and vote with the empty bottles. And we made a commitment to each other that if the yes bin was full at the end of the weekend, we'd go in on the Monday morning and resign. And we got to the Sunday night and the yes bin was full. And there was a few in the no bin, which bear in mind, this is now nearly 20 years ago. It was only about five years ago. Our parents confessed that they were the ones putting the bottles in the no bin because they worried about us giving up our jobs and but that was the sort of that was the thing that catalyzed it and so we we made a commitment that at 10 o'clock the next morning on that monday morning we'd all respectively go to our different bosses and resign and i stood outside my board account director's office at 9 57 on the monday and I, I i bottled it I, I i didn't go through with it and so i went back to my desk and i called adam and john and they said have you resigned and i said no and they said well, why not and i said well hang on have you two and they went no no we haven't either so we all collectively bottled it i think mainly because we all thought each other was just putting the others two up to sort of as a big elaborate joke to get your mate to resign from his job but we we then recalibrated said okay 10 30 we'll go and resign and we actually did do it that time and then so then we found ourselves sort of well now without a job but with a commitment to set the smoothie business and I have to say it was it was so much harder than we thought to the point was if we'd have known it was going to be as hard as it was to get to the launch we never would have done it but if we'd have known how much was worth it for the sort of 15 years after then we would have if that makes sense so it, it was a brutal experience to go from a market stall once to commercial production every day nobody would invest in us nobody would no manufacturer would work with us it was just a business that was destined not to happen but I guess the, the and, and it taught me the, the single best biggest lesson of all is like it, it comes back to my first one about friendship. It was only because we were in a team. It was only because there was three of us doing it that we managed to get through those sort of fifteen grueling months to actually get to a point where we had some bottles made in a factory with someone funding it that we go to a shop and go, Would you like to buy some? And that was that that was the hardest bit getting to day zero. From then onwards it was challenging and there was wild sort of highs and wild lows, but nothing was hard as getting to the start line. So I don't know where you guys are in the journey, but I guess my headline is definitely keep going because it's definitely going to be worth it. And even if it turns out not to work, it'll still be definitely worth it. So, but I, I get it, 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 it's hard and platitudes like me saying, I'll keep going, don't really count for much. But um, I just think same for business is the most sort of, it's such a wonderfully creative, sociable, cultural. I mean, the amount of people I've met, the amount of marriages we've created, the amount of money that's been made, the amount for charity as well as for ourselves. There's been so many important human experiences have come out of this thing called a business that calling it a business almost seems like a sort of slightly it sort of underestimates what the, the thing is. It's a community of human beings doing stuff together. So, so much can happen from it. I can just let, I was just letting you, letting you go. Um, Quite a long answer to your question. <laughs> so you started with the story of you guys at the fair and, and the two jars and, you know, should we quit our jobs? Yes or no? I, I love that as a, as a story as well. I think it's incredibly powerful and it's always a, a great one to tell. How much do you think that's helped in the kind of journey of Innocent, like having that actually really strong, unique and original founding story in your guys kind of relation to people and building that trust with people you were talking to? Oh, well, uh, I think it helps for sure. I think it's important that it's true. It's just a hundred percent true, but I don't want to be disingenuous. We also knew at the time we had a sense of, oh, this will make a good story in the future. So we did it for the reasons I said, to get the confidence, to get the, the market research. But uh, again, it's a cliche, but every, every brand has a great story, right? You need your founding myth 
but my advice would be make the myth real and I'm telling it 20 years later, right? And I think it just helped people. People, I mean, most people don't know the story and why should they? The reason to buy an innocent is because it tastes delicious and it's good for you and it's good for other people too. It's not because oh, some blokes did a market store test, but as a little extra thing to get out there and part of the brand to, for people to reason to care and connect with you, yeah, it, it helps and it was free. So everything in life, right, is either free or expensive and adds value or it doesn't and business is the art of trying to find the stuff that's as low cost as possible that's as value creating as possible so that at, scored well on that at what stage that kind of tastes good does good was something you know i still sort of see that around the innocent brand at what stage in from the sort of inception to you know the development did you come up with that you know tagline almost uh, uh, yeah i mean that's in the original business plan we you know we said our mission was to make it easy for people to do themselves some good and and others too in brackets so from the beginning the commitment was always natural always delicious always healthy always ethical you know from the from from the first year we were giving a minimum of 10% of profits to charity from the second year it's really weird just in the world now there's sort of you know, there's a big thing about plastic but 10 years ago we developed the f the first 100% recycled plastic bottle in the world the first 100% compostable bottle of the world. And the industry now is saying in five years' time they're going to have achieved that. It's like, again, not in a negative way, but we did that 10 years ago, so it's definitely possible. So there's this sense of, if you understand from the beginning the things that you care about, and then you channel humans that are brilliant and committed and loyal and dedicated behind those missions, then you can really, you can really shift the dial in some, in some places. I mean, the thing I love so much about Innocent and the brand is about how human and how real it is and how, you know, that's felt consistent really throughout. How did you guys sort of, you know, determine that? I imagine it was something that's just very real. But when you started out in 1999, you know, what did that juice category look like at the time? And how did you think about your own positioning and how to create standout with what you were building? I think our greatest strength was we weren't from the industry we weren't business people we didn't know the jargon we we just knew that if you get fruit and crush it up and put it into a bottle it tastes nice and looks nice whereas if you go into a shop back then you bought fruit juice it would not taste that nice and it'd be made from a thing called concentrate and it would have a a label on it that was shiny and plasticky and had a photograph of an orange and the bottle you couldn't see through because it was opaque and it was opaque because actually the juice was a bit brown because it was made from this thing called a concentrate. And it was just like, wow, it's like, it's really weird. It's that way because when I do it at home, I just get fresh fruit and it's much nicer. And so we just went into the industry going, oh, we're going to try it this way. And everyone was like, oh, no, you don't understand. You have to use concentrates because that improves your profit margin and you have to use preservatives. So that makes it shelf stable. And we're like, no, it's just that you, you don't understand. Our business is called Innocent. Our, our only idea is to make it naturally so if we don't do that, then we don't have a business idea. So we would be sort of massively, that was the, that was the one thing we had that we couldn't let go of. And I, I, I'm really glad we didn't because it's the only thing that's really given us that that was the sort of the absolute foundation of the competitive advantage. And talk to me a bit more about those early days, right? So you guys decided you had the market stall, right? We're going to quit our jobs. Eventually you all, you know, grow a pair of balls and actually do it. And then at what stage was like, okay, right, we've actually committed to this. Then what did it look like? You know, how did you go about sort of how many products did you have? How many SKUs? You know, how did you start those conversations in terms of, you know, we need packaging, we need all the different elements involved in making this happen and to sell into retailers? Well, oh God. I mean, there's like, there's a huge amount of blagging it for sure. I mean, the, I've always thought, you know, you've got to sort of be spiritually in the right place. But, y y you know, the, 
you're going to sort of slightly have to fake it a little bit to make it. I mean, we were raising funds for a smoothie business by going into to, 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 um, to investors. And because we didn't yet have a smoothie business or a way to make them, we would buy the competitor's product off the shelf, pour it into a bottle that we'd made our own homemade label and front it out going, you see how much better it tastes than the competition? I mean, that's like high level deceit, really. And um, <laughs> I remember uh, in a Quite, quite early on, going, we, you know, we had a presentation with Sainsbury's. We, we had this new idea. I mean, the idea is just, we just came up with ideas, right? Just like, because we are the consumer at this point. You know, we're, the, the target market was sort of essentially hungover 26-year-olds that are trying to compensate for the night before. And I remember being like really hungover and thinking, oh, I'd just love something that was sort of like really nice and creamy, yogurty, and that had sort of like a muesli in it and everything like that. And, and it was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I, 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 lit I, I literally got some natural yogurt and a box of Alpen, and I, and I put the, the two ingredients in a bottle and shook it up and took it to Sainsbury's meeting, and the buyer went, this is incredible. This is the most innovative product we've ever tasted. We want it. And I'm thinking, oh shit, because it's actually just some yogurt and some Alpen, and I'm not sure we can make that at scale, but you sort of, you know, you sort of, you have to sort of get out there a little bit. I mean, I mean by the way, the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme in the sense that we got our first supermarket listings, and we got, we got put into 10 Waitrose. It's taken 18 months of badgering them, badgering them, to get that listing, we eventually get into 10 Waitrose and we're sort of sat there thinking, well, this is one of the sort of the tipping points for the business. If it works in these 10 Waitrose, we'll get put out into more and into more and then the other retailers will take us. If we don't succeed in these 10, we'll get delisted and that'll be the end of it. So like, we have to make sure that they sell in these 10 in Waitrose, but we've got no money for advertising or sampling. We can't think of anything we, can't think of anything we can actually do to make sure they sell apart from why don't we go and buy them? So we just went out and bought our own smoothies from the supermarkets and made sure they went beep through the tills that it looked like they were selling really well. And it worked. And actually you realize after a little bit, because going back to the, the, the basic principles, the product was genuinely better in a way that was relevant to the consumer because it was genuinely natural and delicious and healthy. And it was in packaging that emoted that both subconsciously and consciously. It looked natural. It looked innocent. You know, the, the whole thing was wrapped up in the brand name, which is such a good decision to have that as the North Star. So th because the actual inherent thing was in itself good, it sold itself. But we didn't know that at the beginning. We're just sort of paranoid trying to do everything we can to make sure it works. And, you know, there's a, there was a great article written recently. Everyone wrote, read it. It was basically making the point there's a, there's a fine line between entrepreneurship and criminality. And, you know, sometimes you overstep it. So no. But our job is to slightly, ever so slightly, you know, you got it. You got it. As I say, don't ever do anything that you're ashamed of. Don't do anything that doesn't stand up in the sort of the test of public scrutiny. But you are allowed to be a little bit, a little bit naughty sometimes. So from those ten Waitrose stores where you were mainly buying your own product, how did that then shift to actually getting consumers to buy your own product? So you know, what did Mr. Waitrose man or woman say? Like, yes, your rate of sales great. We want a hundred more stores or. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing. You know, obviously, uh, our, our strategy is not one I think that would last over the, the long term. It, 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 um, I think, you know, I, I believe that they're called Ponzi schemes, and it's innocent, by the way. It's not one big Ponzi scheme, by the way. Uh, it, it, no, it was, it was my point. It was. It, it turned out it was working. It turned out it was selling. So there's sort of that. that you see, people have asked us, when did you feel like, you know, when did you start feeling good about the business? Well, I feel good about the business about now. At the beginning, you just started with 100% anxiety and 100% absolute firm conviction it's not going to work. And what happened was, as things started going in our favor, that the anxiety went from 100 down to 99 and the belief that it was definitely going to fail went down from 100 to 99. 
And as every bit of new new news came in, you sort of reduced the anxiety. It wasn't a sense of we're making it. It was a sense of it's now not definitely going to fail. And I personally, I, I, I found that a sort of a healthy anxiety because it, it just made us obsess about how is it for the consumer? And that is the innocent thing is like, what's it like for the consumer? They're the ones buying the products. Without them, we're just some very weird people with a very expensive fruit crushing hobby. So it is about how is it for them? What do they want? Are they getting it? Is it good value? Is it delicious? Does the cap come off easily? You know, just all these things. And so we're just obsessed about all that stuff. And being anxious and obsessive about the consumer experience paid off. The consumer experience, but also the team and the culture you were building internally, right? And, you know, you sort of like innocent fruit towers, right? It has its own name, the HQ, and it's always seemed internally to be a place that's just as warm and friendly as the packaging and the product would suggest. You know, what were the sort of processes you guys put in place in terms of hiring and, and building that culture internally? How much was natural and organic and how much was sort of structured? And Well, um, <laughs> I read this quote from Howard Schultz. He said, everything's important and some things are more important than others. And, and, and that really stuck with me because everything is important in business. Every tiny, but even, even the fact that our pay slips say thank you, it's a tiny little thing, but I think it's an important tiny little thing. And we were, I could say this, we were sincere. We were genuine. The, the brand is a reflection of the values of the founders and the tonality is a reflection of the way that we speak and the products are a reflection of the things that we want. And our, our belief system is very much that, that, that we need capitalism and it has been a fantastic thing for the world, but it's got some bad dark sides to it and our job is to round off those sharp edges. Hence, everyone in the business was made a shareholder. Everyone in the business got a share in the profit. Hence, that the business ran uh, an ethical supply chain. Hence, that you know the business distributed money to charity. All these things we thought, well, you use capitalism as the engine, but you can still modify and get to a, a, a slightly more positive outcome. So, we didn't have all of that from the beginning, but we did have a sense of the critical importance of finding, finding people that have the same sort of worldview, not the same skills and talents, because you want people that actually think and act differently, but you need people that have the same fundamental character that they want to be successful, but in a way that is collaborative and they want to win as a team, not as an individual, and that you don't see success as being a zero-sum game, that actually they realize, especially in business, that's what I love about entrepreneurship, is the more successful businesses there are, the more successful businesses there will be. It's, a, it's an additive um, part of the world. And so we were crystal clear on never compromise on talent, always make sure that the people that put the most in get the most out, always firstly recruit based on values, and they were the fundamental things that drove the culture. Yeah, we made it a really cool office with grass on the floor and lots of natural light and all that kind of stuff. But they're nice little things, but they're no conversation for the fundamental human characteristics of the people that you work with. And again, we were, we're obsessive people, right? We just we, we, we obsess about what we believe are the things that create the value. The most important thing is the relationship between you and your consumer. The second is the relationship between you and your employees. So they're the things to up weight they're the things to think twice three times four times about have we made it as good as it could possibly be can you talk about the first sort of marketing and like brand hires in the organization like i mean i know it was quite a long time ago um but what sort of profiles you were looking for you know who were the people and then as well at what point did you feel confident and comfortable that you could actually start investing in you know things like out of home and, and traditional media 
Well, I mean, I came from an ad agency, so I had a sort of, I had a bit of a cynical view of it, really, that you can spend an awful lot of money and get not, and get not a lot back. Our first ad campaign was five posters. They were five very strategically chosen posters. One was outside the head office of Starbucks. One was outside the head office of Tesco's. One was outside the head office of Sainsbury's. One was outside the head office of Boots. One was outside the head office of Waitrose. So we just individually bought each of those poster sites, put a poster up, and then put out a release to the media going, Innocent's first national poster campaign, and sent out to the to the, everyone in, in our database pictures of the, the posters and made it feel like bigger than what it was. And again, it's a bit naughty. But it was true. It was a national poster campaign because those head offices are in different parts of the country. And yeah, there's only five. But I didn't say there was more than five. I just said it was national and it was. So, <laughs> And you, I guess when we had no money, I mean, Innocent, we raised £250,000 at the beginning of business plan and we never went back. So the whole of the business was built on that £250,000. So we were very conscious of we have to see a return. And we actually found that the best returns, as I said, came from the things that had zero variable cost, which was making sure that the packaging looked beautiful, making sure that the copy on the packaging was funny and informative and made a connection with people. That cost zero variable cost, but it, caught, it created a lot of, of, of brand value. The TV advertising wasn't till I think, year seven. And even now I look at it and go, most of it was wasted, I think. Sampling was also something that was really good for us, but the best type of sampling was when it was in a shop that was already selling smoothies. So people would amazingly try a cup and go, oh, that's really nice, and then buy one. And you think, oh my God, it actually works. You can see it there, and the retailer loves you, so they're going to buy more of you. And it was really grassroots up, store by store, decision by decision. Is it working? Is it making the consumer's life better? Is it making the employee's life better? Is it making the retailer's life better? And, and I think that's really interesting, um, you know, for everyone who was here earlier, we actually had a uh, talk all around the value of TV. And I imagine as well, there's nuances and differences when you're an offline FMCG product versus, you know, an online massive business wanting to invest and get huge results and spikes just in terms of the... Yeah, no, exactly. Like, you know, my, my pal said at Moonpig, and for four years, he was trying to find a way to drive people to the site and nothing worked. And then he just did an old school TV ad and it went through the roof because... His business, you can watch it on telly, go straight online. Ours, you've got to go watch it on telly and then remember a week later when you're in Sainsbury's. I mean, it's just not going to really happen like that. So, yeah, if it's immediate and you've got a direct-to-consumer business, I think advertising can be powerfully good at growing a business quickly. For us, actually, the advertising was really getting onto shelves. So it was much more the selling and the distribution. And I imagine, you know, the the digital world evolved around you, right? When Innocent was launching, there was no Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Sort of how aware of you, how aware were you guys of that sort of evolving around you and how fast were you to sort of start activating and thinking about using those channels? Uh, well, I had zero sense of it. Um, it's funny looking back, you know, from the beginning, Innocent was talking nonsense. You know, like on the, on the, on our labels, we, we were always talking nonsense, right? And what's happened is that as, as a time, you know, then, then websites happened and then sort of Twitter happened and all these things, you realize just more ways to sort of essentially talk. Not, I mean, nice nonsense, you know, sort of brand communications. And I, I remember there was a guy in, in, in the business who was like, Oh, have you heard of this thing called Twitter? And I'm like, no, he goes, look, and he showed me and he like, he showed me a tweet and it, literally it was from his mate. He said, I've just had a nice sausage for lunch. And I'm thinking, and I mean, it, to me, it just seems so puerile. And, and it, it, how would, why would anyone do that? But of course, it became what it became. And it's now brands converse. And I was just very, very fortunate that 
we had a brand that was always about being transparent and communicating. And then all these new apertures for doing that came up and had people in the business that cared. And we were just like, oh, if you think it's good, then do it. So I get zero credit for it. I'm just like, yeah, okay. Uh, don't bother me with it, but if you think it's a good idea, then do it. And, and having that sort of spirit of just letting everyone act entrepreneurially inside the business, I think was really powerful as well. And then arguably, I think as, as a brand, you know, I know a lot of people who've said to me, you know, I first came into contact with Innocent because of Twitter and you're tweeting along to sort of, you know, major TV shows going on and really talking to people where people are and it makes you feel relevant and, you know, all of those sort of warm feelings that are so integral to, you know. Yeah, well, it, was just, it was a new way to sort of communicate and actually, you know, again, uh, zero credit to me and 100% credit to the team. We got voted the best social brand in Britain three years running and they were better than, we voted better than Nike, Apple, BBC. All, it was like, because we're basically making funny jokes on Instagram and Facebook. But when I look at it, the, the, the quality of the, the content and, you know, it was there was just a lot of very creative, engaged people, which comes back to my earlier point. It's about, you want to win in business. It's about the people you bring in. Everything else is detail. It's, it's that. Finding, do you have the ability to spot when someone's excellent? Do you have the ability then to attract them in? Do you have the ability to organize the business so that they are then doing their very things that they are best at? It's all that is. I think that's the main part of the the job of the leadership. Really, is finding the talent, assigning the talent, rewarding the talent, and getting out of the way of the talent so they can get on with doing their thing. And how big was the team when you did um, do the final sale to Coca Cola? Uh, it was three hundred and thirty people. Wow, significant. And I'd I'd love to sort of get into that story a little bit more because it's not like it was a oh you know here comes Coca Cola and wash your hands then you're done. It, it was a process, right? You know how how long had you been speaking to Coca Cola and what was that journey like? Well, they they called us from our second year in business and said you know we we love the brand, we love what you're doing, we'd like to invest, and we were like <laughs> no thanks, you know no way. And they ring every year ago. Oh, we still love the brand. Do you want to invest? We go, no, thanks, no, thanks. That happened every year. And actually, the, the back, the, the, the innocent sort of first nine years was just essentially uninterrupted growth. We just, we just kept doubling. You know, we had literally four years where we doubled, 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 doubled. And that took us to 2007. So we were the fastest growing brand in Europe. We were just everything that could go right went right. And then in 2008, everything that could go wrong went wrong. So we lost a, a third of our business overnight with the combination of the, the credit crunch and the consumer confidence. But also Tropicana launched against us really aggressively. We, uh, we had launched new, loads of new innovations into the market, all of which failed. We'd launched into new countries, none of which were making any money. We uh, had brought in a new management team and we'd stepped back and they, they weren't able to deliver the donuts. We'd borrowed money off the bank for the first time ever in the previous year, unbeknown, without really engaging in it, signed a piece of paper saying that that the bank can ask for the money back if we don't hit our revenue and profit targets. But we've always beaten our revenue and profit targets. So there was no problem there. Apart from this year, suddenly we've crashed through the floor on everything. And we've bought £16 million worth of fruit that we now don't longer lead because the business was supposed to grow by 40%, but it's declined by 33%. And the bank wants its money back and we can't. And so we were, we, we were in days of having the keys taken off, off us, which was really sobering. You're like, oh God, we're going to be those guys. You, you read about people that have built a successful business and then lose it all overnight. And then in the middle of this absolutely awful sandstorm, our manufacturer, which is a single manufacturing company that made 
100% of our products since day one. And bear in mind, our products are fresh, so they have to be made every single day. There is no stock. They're made and shipped every single day. They call us at one o'clock on a Friday afternoon and say, we're really sorry. We wanted to tell you before, but legally we weren't allowed to. As of five o'clock this evening, we're going out of business. This is the last batch of smoothies we're making for you. So you go, oh, that's bad, because that means now our business is over. <laughs> And the bank still wants the money back that, yes, we don't have because we've lost it. So it's like, that was a bit of a WTF moment, I, I, I can tell you. So we, we have sort of, we have, we, have, we have had the highs and we, we, have, we have had the lows. And I can tell you when that's happening and you get your annual phone call from Coca-Cola Coca going, hey, we'd like to invest in your business. You go, oh, yes, please, that would be great. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating, but it was like we had to sell a bit of the business to save it, right? And fortunately, we had this company that had always loved the brand, always loved the philosophy, loved, loved all bits of it. The, the emphasis on the ethics, the emphasis on the money going to charity, the emphasis on quality, all that kind of stuff. And we ran a process and we had actually quite a few people wanting to invest, but most of them were professional money that saw that the business was in distress and put in really aggressive offers saying things like, We'll have to stop paying 10% of profits to charity and pay it to them as dividends. We're going to have to give them the majority control of the board and effectively we'll be, be, we'll be relegated to being employees that they can dismiss at any point. Whereas Coca-Cola had this sort of thing, well, we think you're having a really tough year, but we think you're on trend long term and we don't want anything other than just to, you know, invest in the business. And they were just so true to their word. It's weird. I mean, I'm not here to advertise Coca-Cola, but they've been the most unbelievably brilliant business partners to us and, they put money in, and the only thing that they wanted quite reasonably is an opportunity to buy it at some point in the future. And we had a mechanic that we agreed that when we decided we were done, there was a formula of how the business would be valued. And so in 2008, we did the deal. And end of 2012, we decided it's been 15 years. It's now time for us to step aside. The new leadership team can take it on. And, and it, it's just been the whole thing's a fairy tale because you know I was there for the investor board this morning and the guys that are running the business are the guys that we appointed before we stood down and the business has absolutely flourished they've never made better products they're now launching in Japan Shanghai Rio uh, it's really we 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 created it from nothing to become Europe's favorite little juice business they're taking it from Europe's favorite juice business to the world's favorite healthy drinks business and that's super exciting to see that happen without me having to do the work. I mean, it's like, a, it's, 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 it's the perfect blender. You feel really proud, but I don't have to do it. It's great. Um, do you think European consumer businesses have the potential to do that without a sort of huge, you know, conglomerate behind them? Well, Red Bull did. Red Bull was independent, still is. Much better business than us. You know, they grew to 4 billion revenue on a single product. We grew to 200 million revenue on 60 products. You know, it was just the, the simplicity of that business. Again, if you spot the trend, if you deliver a genuine material benefit to the consumer, then they will reward you. I mean, at the end of the day, Red Bull, whichever you, whatever you think about it, it definitely delivered on its promise. And it was, it went into the single biggest need state consumers have. Is that the, the common, the most common complaint human beings make is they say, oh, I'm tired. And Red Bull delivered that. We were much low down. We was like, well, if you feel like you would do yourself some good. And they're essentially selling vice and we were selling virtue. And I'll tell you this, people pay, <laughs> people pay a lot more money for vice than virtue. I mean. But so yeah, it's always possible. It's always, as I said, we only, we, it wasn't the plan. 
It's turned out great in a way that I like. A day does not go by without me thanking God, Jesus, the universe, Mother Nature, everyone for the way it's turned out. But it wasn't the plan. We had to do it because we screwed up. I can blame the externalities of 2008 and they were extreme. But fundamentally, we hadn't, we hadn't had enough of a rainy day fund set aside and we didn't react quickly and we were in distress. So we had to sell a part to save it. So I'm super glad that we had that opportunity. It wasn't the plan. We, of course, we would have rather have like achieved, become the global healthy drinks business independently. But wow, I'll take this as a as a as a plan B any day. And fundamentally, oh, can, can I piggyback on that question with something that is probably more related to Jam Jar? With with all these lessons and all these these narratives around inventory, you mentioned that you only had inventory for a day. And if you compare that with Red Bull, which obviously could store things a little bit longer, and you look at Jam Jar as a business that is you know, taking the learnings from those days and now applying them into s- selecting companies, what are the what are the things that you have shaped within Jam Jar and how you finance companies? like yours, if you had to do it all over again, but this time from the investor point of view, how have you shaped venture capital via the Jam Jar fund to fund businesses like Innocent? First of all, would you have done it? And if you would have done it, how would you have done it differently to compensate for those issues such as market, inventory, growth rates, cost of goods and materials, and traction required for that for downstream investors? And then lastly, when maybe as part of that, you can tell the story about your investor meetings, which I remember was a really entertaining story. Well, uh, by the way, I make no claim that Jam Jar sort of shaped the the VC world. N- no way. But um, what what do we think? Um, well, there's the several things in no particular order, but certainly one thing I do think is what we see happen an awful lot at the moment is. We've all been infused subconsciously by the sort of the West Coast tech model, which is your, you have to raise as much money and spend it as quickly as possible to grow as quickly as possible. That absolutely works brilliantly when it works brilliantly. But of course, there's plenty of times when it doesn't work and it's not necessarily always the right approach, certainly to every industry and every business. And so quite often I find myself... Speaking to people are like doing the same. Well, we're doing this. We're doing this seed round to get us ready for the series A, and then we're going to do the series B and the series C and the series D. It's like it is another way of saying I'm going to con- continually dilute myself, and it could be that's right. And I'm never. I would never for one second say that I I'm in a position to say what's what's right and what's wrong. But I can say there is always this alternative way of doing it, which is that if you can find the model where you get the money in before you pull your money out, then you can grow your business independently of having to raise the money. Uh, Innocent was a case in point that we actually managed to beg and and just persuade, just through a combination of charm and persistence that to our manufacturer that we would pay them on day 60. And the retailers, we begged and begged for them to pay us on day 30. It meant we got our money in, like 30 days we had to pay out. So that's why we could grow so quickly on only raising £250,000. And so th- we couldn't have grown that business any quicker than we did. I mean, it was just like, the, literally, we the world was running out of fruit. You know, we're the, the biggest import of passion fruit in Europe and blueberries were out of seat. You know, we were supply strike constrained in a way that money wouldn't have solved the problem. So we grew as fast as it was possible to grow that business whilst retaining all of the equity for ourselves. And it's not always going to be possible and that's not always going to be the right way. But it does seem to be at the moment that no one questions the idea of it's all about raising as much and spending as much to get as big as possible and not 
working out is the underlying economic engine one where you can remain independent and where you can uh, raise money. And I think it's partly without wanting to sort of sound too negative. The VC world's product is money and their job is to sell you their money. So, of course, they talk about this being the, you know, there's not even a, an acknowledgement there's another way. Whereas, because we're entrepreneurs first and investors second, we go, no, there, is, there is definitely another way and it could be a way that it might take you a few more years, but you're going to get to have, you're going to get to a pie that's the same size of pie and you'll have a much bigger slice of it. And uh, but, that's I mean, what you want. You're, you're kind of, in effect, uh, you're now within the, the scope of Jamjar kind of effectively saying you wouldn't take that money. Uh, the, I, I I literally I said it in a meeting yesterday. I'm saying, are you sure you want this money? Because I think there's a way for you to grow your business, admittedly not as quickly, but in a way that you'll be you will retain more shares. And the shares are where the value is, assuming that the, the business works. So yeah, we're, uh, I I have no interest in getting rich on the back of someone that doesn't need it. If we can genuinely be net positive to the likelihood of that business to be successful, that's our mission, right? We, we know how lucky we are to have had the success that we've had. Jamjal's mission now is to try and pass on that karma to the next generation. And we will do anything that we can to help the boat go faster. But we will ask questions that are about protecting the value for the entrepreneur that's doing it. So if, so if you were a founder and you took that advice, right, you walked away from this saying, okay, I'm going to look creatively into accounting as a way of perhaps not raising money for the purposes of inventory and working capital, but to some of the questions that Natasha was saying, you know, in terms of the cost of bringing in really great people, which is increasingly going up. And on top of that, any campaigns which convert, like for example, any two campaigns or anything like that, that, that isn't so easily financeable. And therefore you might take venture. How, how would you recommend structuring the kinds of companies like yours with modern day VC funds and maybe working capital financing? Again, I'm not going to, I'm not answering your question directly, but one of the things I always watch out for the most with the professional money is the sort of the terms and conditions it brings, which no one will tell you about. And they won't be there in the term sheet. They'll just be in the final documents. They'll all have a thing called a drag along right, which is essentially giving them the ability to tell you when to sell your business. And I have the, like a, as an entrepreneur, I always had an allergic reaction to that we turned down so much VC money because ultimately it had that clause hidden within it, which is, I don't think that's why you guys are setting up a business, right? You're setting up the business to be the master of, of your own ship. And you don't want someone because they've got to report back to their fund that's got a five-year cycle to, to say now's the time to sell. It's got to be your call. And so our, our investment thesis is this, right? Never, never expect or try to tell an entrepreneur what to do. Our job is to come along on, on your ride, helping you row your boat with you, never to try and you know, tell you where to row to. In terms of I don't have like nice glib answers to what you're saying. And as I'm at pain point out and repeat myself, sometimes it is definitely the right idea to get a load of money so you can get the team and all the rest of it. But it's just always worth just checking the, the, the plan B approach first. How, what, how does it look like if we, we just take a slightly less aggressive approach to growth and think more about how can we run this business so it's at least profitable on, or even just on a marginal profit basis. Because we see businesses literally running Facebook adverts for £600 to sell a product which makes them £300. And that runs out of that. The, the, the maths catch up eventually. 
Um, I want to circle back just for a minute because we haven't actually discussed, you know, how Jam Jar started and indeed the name, right? If you think about it sort of full circle, you guys had your jam jars where people put the, you know, whether you should or should not quit your jobs, right? So there's this constant story that's being told even until today. You know, what was that point that you said, you know, because you described yourselves and as entrepreneurs first, investors second, but, you know, now it is an investment fund. So it was, you know, what was the decision like, okay, now we're going full into this, it's jam jar. And how did you decide on the thesis for the sort of brands that you were going to support? I mean, I'll, get, I'll just be really honest with you. The, 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 here's how the conversation goes as we sort of, we know we're exiting from Innocent. Oh shit, we don't have an office to go to anymore. Adam and John have got two, you know, had two kids at that point, like, well, mate, no, no, we can't stay at home because then we'll get involved in childcare. So we're like, we've got to, we've got to have somewhere to go. So we're like, all right. So we're, we're going to get an office. So it's going to be close to our home. And then what we're going to do in it. And then we'll thought, oh, we'll, we'll do investing because we've done a few things on, on the side before. So that's a sort of slightly glib answer. The, the reality is, look, again, you guys know this, you're doing it already. It, entrepreneurs are the yeast by which society grows its spread right we start businesses businesses are the only thing that create wealth in society government has any can only tax people and spend it on hospitals because there's businesses employing people and there's wages and charities going to raise money because people have got jobs and you really can't there's nothing sort of more higher order importance for, for sort of wealth and progress in society than entrepreneurs so our mission was like, well, blimey, if we can, if we can somehow with a bit of time and a bit of money and a bit of experience and a bit of network help and increase the likelihood of entrepreneurs in this country being successful, that's a great mission. And I'm being honest, it is, it's a mission that's a lot less taxing than operating a business. You know, my days when it's innocent, you're sort of, you're switched on from seven in the morning to 11 at night. Whereas now... You know, I have breakfast with my kids every day and I go to the office at nine and I come back and have dinner with my kids every day at six. And it's like, that was not possible when I was running Innocent. So it affords a much, it's a better quality of life with a sense of mission attached to it. But it's absolutely nowhere near as engaging or rewarding or create fulfilling as setting up a business. You know, in, running Innocent was sort of like, Jam Jar is like l very low stress and sort of medium engagement, whereas Innocent was like, absolute maximum engagement, but also really quite high stress. So it's sort of, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just a different deal. And it was the right deal for 15 years. This is the right deal for me now. Does that mean there'll be an, another company to come later down the line for you? I just, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, I think it's getting increasingly less likely, I have to say. Because you just realise there's just so many exciting... You know, I, I, I love doing this and it's been the making of me. It did require going into the same room every day. But the world's so amazing and you get to see a lot more of it. You don't have to go to the same room every day. So uh, I, I am now equally split between family, charity, politics, writing and business. And for me, for my brain, that's much more exciting than fruit juice. I like fruit juice, but like 15 years of fruit juice is enough, right? It's like, I get it. It's oranges and apples and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Squeeze it. Cool. So one last question for me before I open up to you guys, because I'm sure you're dying to ask loads of things. But obviously, you know, as I said at the beginning, like you guys arguably invest in what I think, are, you know, some of the best consumer tech brands that we have, some of them in the room here today as well, which is awesome. What are the kind of best tactics you've seen in terms of how those individuals and companies have gone about thinking about their brand? Um, yeah, I mean, look, we have a simple philosophy you're investing in people, right? It's the same when you're running a business. You're, 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 it's about the people. So we're, we're firstly 
and most importantly obsessed about the the team and we much prefer a team to an individual the quality you know their character what makes them tick do they have the sort of the characteristics that we believe are sort of associated with with success in business but we have to believe that the product as well as if it works because there's always a massive chance it won't right that, that that's a given but if it does work that it will be big let's face it we you know we, we, there's got to be that sense of of scale that also just there just has to be that sense of and would it be net positive for society we just wouldn't have invested in wonga even if people were guaranteed returns we just wouldn't we just think that's just a bit lame but the business we do we just see we just see each one it's like it's going to make someone's life just a bit better you know not i'm not trying to make some massive grandiose claim but it's going to remove a friction point or it's going to create a little moment of joy or it's just going to it's going to make life a little bit better so that we look for amazing people that are doing something that will be could be big and that will be net positive in society so that's what the the the, the things that we screen for are thanks for listening if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.